You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Okay, good morning everyone and uh, thank you for coming um, to this launch of the brief, the new TV brief, Tenuous Trilateral, uh, Russia-China-India relations in the changing world order. Um, I'm very happy to, to see so many of you here. Uh, we know that when we put China and Russia in the title, many people show up. Now we have also included India, and that seems to have worked out well as well. Um, we have about <clears throat> one hour and 50, 15 minutes uh, of exciting conversation ahead of us. Uh, I'm pleased that the author of the report Christopher Vedasher-Syung is with us. Uh, Christopher is about to defend his PhD thesis in Oslo later this spring. Uh, and he's an associate fellow with us at the Asia program at UV. Uh, and he's also uh, working at the Norwegian Institute of Defense Studies. Used to. Used to, okay. Uh, I'm also glad to introduce Dr. Katharina Englund, currently senior advisor at CIEPS. Uh, Katrina holds a PhD in Peace and Conflict Studies uh, and has previously been director in the Swedish government offices. And, but I must uh, regret to inform you that uh, our third panelist, Samuel Berenval, is down with the flu. Um, I will uh, sit in for him to bring you some of the perspectives from India on today's topic. So I will wear two hats, moderator and expert. My name is Henrik Sjetan Aspengren. I'm a research fellow uh, at UV. I'm also deputy head of the Asia program and the coordinator of the South Asia Initiative, um, uh, initiative that we at UV uh, have with um, Lund University. So as the moderator, uh, I will now give you uh, an instruction. Um, we have time for a Q&A, but I would like to remind you all that this is a question and answer session. So please be brief and succinct um, with your questions and to the point. Uh, it's not time for general reflections on the state of affairs, but uh, a, a succinct question. And I will intervene if I see that you are uh, not really following these instructions and to remind you to come to the point. Um, we will have, uh, uh, we will, uh, this um, seminar will be uh, recorded and podcasted. Uh, we will not podcast uh, the question and answer session, but the, the main uh, body of the, uh, of the talk. Uh, and if you'd like to tweet, there is a hashtag here behind me that you can use. Uh, so we will start here with uh, Christopher, that will, he will give a, about a 20-minute presentation of the brief. Then I will jump in to give some Indian perspectives, and then Katarina will follow uh, and open up the conversation a bit uh, to discussion about uh, uh, this trilateral uh, in the current uh, world order and with special reference to Russia. So, Christopher, would you, if you would like to please start. Thank you, Henrik. Um, first of all, thank you again, Henrik, and thank you for UI uh, for organizing this, this seminar. Um, I think it's a great opportunity uh, to explore and discuss 
to sorry to uh, explore and discuss this very important uh, issue of relations between China, Russia, and India. It is actually a bit surprising uh, that we do not pay more attention uh, to the triangle relationship. Uh, the three states are among the world's largest countries. They constitute around 40% of the world's population and amount to close to 20% of the global economy. China is a neighboring country to both India and to Russia. All three have nuclear weapons and they're modernizing their militaries. They have very ambitious foreign policy agendas, which seek to advance their interests in their respective regions, and in the case of China, perhaps globally. Moreover, the three countries are perhaps the most crucial non-Western powers with an aspiration to reform and to some extent reshape the current liberal international order. And given that their interaction also happens at a time of great political uh, uncertainties, how they interact between themselves, but also with the wider uh, international community clearly has great implications for global politics, but also for us here in Europe. So I will, in my presentation, provide a rather broad overview of trilateral relations, with a focus on what type of cooperation that has been achieved. I will also discuss shortly where I think relations are headed and put certain emphasis on India, which I think has important, an important role to play for how relations will uh, develop in the future. And one of the main points I would like to make is that although trilateral cooperation has developed gradually, there is a risk of what I call a two plus one constellation forming, which is a stronger link between China and Russia and where India has a more limited link with both of them. And this will test the durability of the relations. At the end, I will also discuss some implications for Europe. So what do we talk, what do we mean when we talk about trilateral cooperation between China, India, and Russia? Well, on the most basic level, Trilateral relations refer to the institutional cooperation where the, where the foreign ministers meet uh, regularly, which is normally uh, referred to as RIC meetings. Now, the purpose of these meetings is to exchange views on regional and global affairs, but also to find areas for joint cooperation. The RIC meetings officially began uh, uh, in, the, in the 2000s, but can be traced back to the mid-1990s, when Russia first promoted the idea of developing a strategic triangle. Now, from a longer perspective, of course, the three countries had already tried to develop close trilateral relations, especially during the Cold War. While each country had their own motivations at that time, broadly speaking, the common driver was an aspiration to find some sort of opposition to the West and to the US in particular. Nonetheless, there was never any formalized trilateral cooperation that emerged, but more bilateral engagement, uh, most notably the China Soviet alliance in the 1950s, or India and China's participation in the Baldung movement, for instance. As we all know, relations soon became more conf uh, conflictual, especially between China and, uh, and India and Russia. But any notion of any trilateral cooperation at the beginning of the 1970s was more or less dead. Now, if we fast forward a couple of decades, the notion of triangular relations has emerged again. As during the Cold War, it was again opposition to the US and a desire to develop a multiple order which created incentives to develop ties. As I mentioned earlier, this was much credited to Russia in the 1990s. At that time, Russia had become increasingly disappointed with the West and the US, especially over NATO eastward expansion. However, when Russia promoted the idea, neither India or China were particularly enthusiastic about the idea. And there were several reasons for this, but put simply, neither China or India wanted to jeopardize their ties with the West which were very crucial for modernizing their economies and for integration in the global economy. There was also a degree of doubt over 
whether Russia was interested in more signaling towards the, the West than working for any real cooperation between the three. However, some days later, China, Russia, and India did indeed begin to formalize trilateral cooperation with the foreign ministers' meeting. The first RIC meeting took place in 2003 and has since then seen 16 such meetings, with the last recently held in China. In 2006, there was also a top summit le uh, leader meeting, which was repeated at the sidelines at the G20 meeting in Argentina last year. So what has been done? Well, paradoxically, both little and much. While concrete achievements include cooperation on disaster management, a trilateral business forum, a trilateral academic scholar dialogue, these outcomes are of course interesting, but not all that impressive, considering the often very ambitious joint statements. This is also why many outside observers claim that the RIC mechanism is more talk than action. However, this misses an important point. The mere existence of the RIC format offers a multilateral platform to sit down and exchange views on common concerns. In fact, in recent years, there has been a stronger focus on finding a consensus for a new security architecture in the Asia-Pacific. But perhaps most important is that the RIC offers a platform to manage and deal with bilateral issues among the three states. It is also not uncommon that there are uh, bilateral meetings held at the sidelines of RIC meetings to further build trust and enhance cooperation. And cooperation between China, India, and Russia is though more than just a strict trilateral mechanism. In fact, their cooperation cannot be fully appreciated if you don't look at how they engage in regional and global institutions. The most visible example is, of course, the BRICS. Now, the BRICS has often been criticized for failing to live up to its ambitions. A major challenge is that the BRICS countries have very different political systems, their economic size differs, and their compositions. Nonetheless, there has been some gradual progress. The best example is perhaps the BRICS Bank, or the New Development Bank, as it is called, to fund and finance different kinds of projects. Moreover, while the BRICS started mostly focused on economic and financial affairs, it has in recent years moved to become, uh, to, to, to assume more of a political identity. BRICS summits now include statements also on global affairs. A good example of this is how BRICS countries showed support for Russia in the wake of the Ukraine crisis 2014. The other notable uh, example is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SEO. Now, India only became a full member in 2017 uh, after years of stalling from China and only admitted after also Pakistan got into the club. The SEO has, has developed into the most important re regional institution in Central Asia. And it, it is sometimes claimed that the SEO is becoming irrelevant, that the inclusion of Pakistan and India will make it harder to steer, considering the tensions between New Delhi and Islamabad. While this remains to be seen, it is clear that India in the SEO offers a new venue for trilateral cooperation. We have already seen some of this in terms of the fight against terrorism, for instance. And now with the ongoing Pakistan-India uh, standoff, Russia and China have offered the SEO as a platform to de-escalate tensions. Now, in addition to BRICS and the SEO, it's also men worth mentioning that the three countries cooperate on a global level. For instance, in the G20, the WTO, IMF, or, or the UN system. Here, cooperation seems to be a little bit more bilateral linked, but there are some examples. For instance, there have been some common efforts to increase the voting shares in the IMF. China and India have several common interests regarding the global trading system, calling for reform of the WTO, especially now with US President Trump's trade protectionist policies. China and India also cooperate in the UN system regarding uh, global climate change. In China and Russia, of course, close partners in the United Security Council. 
although China's reluctance to fully support India's effort for permanent seat there hinders uh, cooperation between the three. Now, despite this gradual movement towards cooperation, several challenges, challenges uh, are evident. According to me, one of the main ones is that there is an uneven development of bilateral relations between the three, which will also test the durability of relations. In essence, trilateral relations are developing towards a two plus one constellation, as I mentioned in the beginning, with a strong China-Russia relationship at the core and India with less developed relations with neither of the two. Now, the Sino-Russian relationship is, in my view, the most comprehensive of the three. To be sure, there are several underlying issues. For instance, competition over Central Asia, unbalanced trade where Russia is a de facto energy pro provider to, to China, or lingering, lingering concerns in Russia over immigration, Chinese immigration into the Russian Far East. Nevertheless, since the end of the Cold War, China and Russia have moved from being Cold War adversaries to a very close strategic partnership. Now, we shouldn't call this an alliance. China and Russia have taken, but China and Russia have taken several steps to increase their political and military ties. One of the main reasons for this is, of course, that both states feel pressure from the U.S., something that has been an underlying logic in Sino-Russian relations in the entire post-Cold War period, but which has grown strong in recent years, especially after Ukraine. Now, add to this a personal closeness between Putin and China's Xi Jinping, and you have the making of a very close strategic partnership. Now, the India-Russia relationship is in one sense more stable than China-Russia, but still limited and with the risk of becoming stagnant. India and Russia take great pride in their long and friendly relationship, dating back to the Cold War. But old memories only get you so far. Put very simply, bilateral relations are by and large built on defense cooperation. While this creates solid ground for pol political trust, India and Russia need to move beyond this to develop a more comprehensive relationship. For sure, there have been attempts to find new areas, such as, such as energy deals or civil nuclear cooperation, but by and large, more needs to be done. Bilateral trade has in recent years stood at around 10 USD billion compared to China-Russia trade, which is 90 USD, USD billion. In addition, while Russia will remain India's largest supply of, of arms for, for the foreseeable future, the US is increasingly competing with Russia. In addition to this, India and Russia do not view the other side as the most important partner. For all the talk of Russia's so-called turn to the east and engagement with, with Asian states, it is in fact with China that Russia is developing the closest ties and not with India. The most critical relationship, though, is the one between China and India. China and India have developed a complex mix of economic cooperation and security competition. On the positive side, China and India have expanded their trade links. China is investing very much in India, and the two sides have, as I said, a lot of common on the global level. Nonetheless, there are several issues that hamper closer relations. There, are, for instance, there is, for instance, the contested border issue, China's support to Pakistan, and China's growing footprint on the Indian subcontinent, mainly through its Belt and Road Initiative. Important in this context is, of course, India's approach to forge closer ties with the US as a response to the challenge from China. Now, India has by far fully embraced the US attempt at building a broad uh, India-Pacific coalition to contain China. But India and US do share a common concern over India's rise in the region, and the two sides have in the last decade or so gradually but very but moved gradually but taking some very important steps to forge closer political and security ties. Now, this includes arms sales to India, new agreements for military cooperation, or a restart of the so-called Quad Coalition made up by US, Japan, Australia, and India. 
The question now is, of course, what this means for future development of trilateral relations, and if the trilateral will play any role in the future. While it may, while it may seem some counterintuitive, my feeling is it will, at least in the short term. For all the forging of closer ties with the US, India will want and needs to remain engaged with Russia, and especially with China. In the end, India cannot risk to become too confrontational with China, as it depends on China for trade, and it does not want to risk a military conflict with a much stronger China. However, we will not see any grand strategic triangle develop, but more like the situation is today, where the three countries express broad aspirations and try to find cooperation on more specific issues. The real test, of course, for the long term, is how India will respond to the growing China-Russia link, and how these two will respond to India if New Delhi binds itself closer to the US and other US allies in the Asia-Pacific. Finally, it might be interesting to just discuss some insights for Europe. Regardless of the potential outcome of trilateral cooperation, it is important for Europe to take notice of developments. Broadly speaking, as I mentioned earlier, the three countries do share a common aspiration to reform the international order. Russia is perhaps the most revisionist of the three, but China and India also wish to see a rearrangement so that their interests are better represented. We see this in existing institutions such as the IMF and WTO, but the fact that the countries also try to establish complementary institutions, with China being the prime mover here, exemplified with the Belt and Road Initiative. A more concrete example for us here in Europe is the potential for more involvement of China and Russia, uh, sorry, China and India in the Arctic through Russia. Now China is the biggest non-Arctic state, uh, but India is also interested. In 2013, both became permanent observers in the Arctic Council, and especially China has increased its interest in the Arctic focusing on, on energy and shipping. The Northern Sea, sea Route along Russia's north is now also part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, and the two sides have formally decided to develop what they call a polar silk road. But in my view, the biggest lesson for Europe is to keep a close eye on bilateral relations. First, Europe needs to recognize that a strong Sino-Russian relation is here to stay. Russia's close relationship with China has allowed Russia to alleviate some of the pressure felt from the West following the aftermath of Ukraine, with China-US relations increasingly confrontational and US-Russia US relations at a low point, China and Russia seem to have a common cause in fending off pressure from Washington. Second, the China-India relationship is vital. Here, Europe has some shared concerns with India, where there is space for cooperation, for instance regarding concerns over China's Belt and Road. Just some days ago, the EU labeled China as a systemic, systemic rival to the EU echoing the US language, which sees China and Russia as strategic competitors and top national security threats. At the same time, the EU seems to have recognized the growing importance of India as a regional and potentially global major power, and has in its latest India strategy called for upgraded relations. It is of course too early to say what this all means over the long term, but it is clear that triangular relations between China, Russia, and India will significantly shape regional and global politics in one way or the other. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, uh, Christopher. Uh, so let me first say that I think uh, you know this this study that I encourage all of you to download from our website um, is uh, very welcome. 
Um, I think Christopher's papers provide both a deeper insight and a valuable overview uh, to a topic that is rarely discussed, um, but of great significance. We need to think harder and long-term uh, about how the cooperation between Russia, India, and China impacts not only Asia, but beyond. Christopher shows that this uh, is a trilateral relation with historic roots, but that we cannot just um, rely on our uh, knowledge about its history to guide uh, us in our understanding of the future of the relationship. Why? Because the world is changing, and the world is changing quite rapidly. And the backdrop against which this tri trilateral becomes important is, of course, the ongoing power shift from the West towards the East. You might all be familiar with these figures, but it's worth mentioning that in uh, 2050, half of the world's economy is estimated to belong to Asia. Three of the world's largest economies are then expected to be Asian. Uh, and this shift towards the East does not appear to be just a historical parenthesis. The world's best performing school students are all in Asian countries. And four of the six countries that spend most on research and development are in the region. China's remarkable rise and India's slower but steady transformation is, of course, of greatest consequence. We're talking about the rise of nations comprising about 40% of the world's population. Now, of the three countries we discussed today, the least known actor in Sweden is India. So therefore, I will, in my intervention here, uh, concentrate on India's foreign policy priorities. Historically, India's focus has been on its immediate neighborhood, basically South Asia. For decades, India did uh, neither have the ambition or the capabilities to act as a power outside this immediate neighborhood. But it was a reluctant multilateral actor and had a very land-focused uh, military, uh, military power. Ideas about a greater role in world affairs for India was always there, especially within the smaller uh, foreign policy elite in Delhi. But the diplomatic uh, capacity and military capabilities were lacking. In international relations, India instead emphasized moral power to set itself up as an example of tolerance, anti-colonial leg legacy, secularism in a multi-religious society, and so forth. India was, of course, non-aligned, but was a steadfast partner to the Soviet Union and later Russia. It was historically somewhat distant to the United States, and after the Sino-Indian War in 1962, increasingly worried about China. But as India liberalized its economy and began engaging in the world in new ways, and from, uh, from the late 1980s, things began to uh, slowly change, uh, also in its foreign policy priorities. And since 2004, and accelerating uh, since 2014, 
India's engagements have diversified and intensified. We have witnessed deepened engagement with Southeast Asia, with the Gulf countries and the wider Indian Ocean world, with Japan, and in particular, with the US. To a large extent, uh, it is India's growth trajectory that has created new preconditions for the country to become an actor on the international stage. The picture is pretty clear. India has cut poverty levels significantly. Growth rates have been consi consistently high. Uh, it is now the world's sixth largest economy, heading to become the third largest economy within a couple of decades. The main priority for India's uh, foreign policy is to manage its relations so that it can continue the trajectory it is already on. And it will look for uh, cooperation that enhances this possibility and increasingly posture or even act against initiatives that uh, it understands as restraining. One term India has used for this behavior is, as Christopher mentions, leading power. The geographical region where it aims to become a leading power is the Indian Ocean and South Asia. Now, it's debatable whether India has, uh, can shoulder this role already today, but it is an ambition that guides its um, engagement uh, and reforms. As Christopher correctly observes in his text, the general idea in New Delhi is to build military capabilities, institutional capacity, and economic muscles in order to, for India to be able to shape conditions to its own advantage, not only react to situations as they occur in its neighborhood. And it's also obvious that India's growth has been channels towards substantial modernization of uh, the three wings of the armed forces, but it has been very slow in boasting its institutional capacity. Its diplomatic corps and administration for international engagement is painfully small. And it's hard to keep up uh, on many fronts with an extremely hierarchical and very small administration. Now, the long-term strategic focus for India is, as, as Christopher also mentioned, China. Partly this springs out of the mistrust built up after the uh, Sino-Indian War in 1962. Partly it comes out of an acknowledgement that China very well can challenge India's own emergence as a global power. There are, of course, security concerns as well. The border dispute, China's lending to infrastructure projects in Pakistan and the rest of South Asia, China's refusal to meet some of India's demand, for example, placing the Jaish Mohammed leader Masood Azhar on the UN terrorist sanction list, and so forth. But China is at the same time India's most important trading partner. And India has been consistent in not supporting efforts that could alienate or confront China. We see this in the Indo-Pacific, where the US is trying to use India as a balancing power in a potential rivalry with China. 
India has instead been trying to build relations with both ASEAN and Japan uh, in order to find a sort of middle way. It is abiding to the idea of strategic autonomy, a, terms that, uh, a term that is a bit difficult to define, uh, but um, it means that it's basically not aligning itself with one or the other side. The Indian view on the relation with Russia is different. India views Russia as a steadfast partner and an ally in the Security Council. And India and Russia keeps up cooperation in particular sectors, such as space, defense, and arms trade, and technical know-how. But there is increasingly a discussion in Delhi about how alive uh, the political relations actually are. As Christopher uh, points out, uh, they seem to have stagnated. <clears throat> but the stagnation seems less to be a result of departing visions, but more difficulties, in, uh, but be more uh, about difficulties in rev revitalizing the relationship. My impression has always been that this was a generational issue. Former Indian civil servants and politicians have all been socialized into thinking about Russia as a close partner. And I assume that younger officials would also, uh, would be more inclined to look towards the West. Uh, but I'm not lo no longer really sure about this. This is for the future to find out. The relation to the US has been complicated for two reasons. First, there has been a historic understanding in Delhi that the US is a somewhat unreliable partner. Second, the American support for Pakistan was for a long time a great problem seen from the uh, perspective from Delhi. But a major shift, of course, came in the early 2000s with the nuclear uh, agreements and clearing, uh, that cleared much of the mistrust, but also uh, a tougher stance from Washington with regards to Pakistan. I would say that the relations between India and the US are much stronger than they have been before. Uh, but uh, the US hardening approach uh, to China makes things increasingly difficult for India, <clears throat> does not wish to be reined in. Even the EU-India relations have significantly improved over the last few years. The new EU strategy for India signals a remarkable shift from EU side. India has responded positively, and the relationship has gone from being non-strategic to strategic. This makes a big difference in from what kind of engagements and the time horizon for these engagements uh, that EU is trying to work out with India. All this, the relations to EU and the relations to the US, I think, are also import, important to weigh in in our discussion about this trilateral. trilateral. Um, and to conclude, um, we know that elections are around the corner in India. Uh, and we all know that India faces huge challenges. Domestic structural reforms have been delayed, implementations that have been announced, uh, sorry, the reforms that have been announced uh, have uh, the implementation ha has had mixed uh, success. Um, we see difficulties in handling challenges such as uh, unemployment and raising uh, inequality and intolerance and violence against minorities. These are critical issues for India 
and also for its partners. I do not see, foresee, however, that the priorities in India's foreign policy uh, will significantly shift if and when a new government is formed in Delhi. Um, and I, th I, I think, as Christopher mentioned, um, that um, there will be some critical years ahead uh, for this trilateral that we'll be discussing today. And also its position in relation to the larger changes that we see uh, in, in world affairs today. So with that, I leave it to Katrina to broaden the discussion up a little bit more. Thank you. Thank you to uh, Christopher for, his, for his in the introduction about his uh, um, sharp paper, uh, which I read with great interest, and for, to Henrik for focusing our minds on the position and role of India, and for the UE for having me here, and for a welcome discussion on global affairs that puts uh, India at the center, which sort of shifts your perspective uh, on different things. Broadly, I agree with Christopher's uh, main conclusion that there is no strategic triangle or even relationship between uh, the three of uh, the parties that we are here discussing. Uh, moreover, I think there is not going to be any sort of neat reordering of global geopolitical chessboard where we have clear winners of, uh, or, even, uh, or global or even regional hegemons. That's just not the, the way the world works. So this is, we are talking about a much more complicated and messy reality. Um, uh, so what is confusing at this time is, of course, that we are going through a period of uh, transition from old, uh, old hierarchies, old social phenomena into something in new territories where nations are jockeying for, for positions, uh, new relationships are sought out. But it would be wrong, I think, to have any... Uh, any foregone conclusions about uh, this resulting in some sort of very neat new order. I don't think that's the way it's going to happen. And talking about China, Russia, and India, we have to, all the underlying complicated issues have already been uh, related to, and we should remind ourselves that this is also a, a geographic area that covers from the, runs from the Arctic down to South Asia, half, half of the world uh, with so many different uh, uh, conditions uh, therein. And just to add an element set, uh, to this uh, sort of more an analysis of where the world in the future is heading, uh, let's add to, uh, to, this, um, to this picture uh, the shift in terms of global population. India soon to become the world's most populous country to bypass China anytime. But also at the end of this century, uh, out of 11 billion human beings, 4.5 are supposed to live or expected to live in Asia. China, India, of course, uh, making up the bulk of that. Uh, but 4.1 billion humans are going to live in Africa. So you're also looking at completely new sorts of relationships uh, that will affect also this triangular relationship that we were talking about. So that's just to reinforce my, my initial remark that this is not going to result in some clean new geopolitical chess game. Um, so let me just add, start out by adding some, um, uh, some lining, aligning out some basic points in assessing the current situation. 
when you do analyze the current situation, you have, as uh, both Henrik and Christopher have uh, in their presentation, you have to add trade economics to your geopolitical analysis in order to assess uh, the underlying um, relationships. And let me just mention that uh, the European Union is the main trading partner with Russia. I mean, um, in, uh, in the various orders are greater than Russia's economic relationship with China, for example. For China, European Union is the main trading partner. And for the European Union, China is the second trading partner after the United States. And as was alluded to, China is India's main trading partner. And India has a huge deficit in its trade with China, which, of course, is, adds to the complications. Uh, so that's the, my first uh, remark. Uh, the second is that China will not always rise. It will soon stop rising, as a matter of fact. Uh, it is bereft with internal problems, readjustments. Um, it is now encountering a Western counter-reaction. Uh, you can debate elements of it. I'm just stating um, some features or outlining some features of the situation. And I would say China is unable or not very good um, I would rather put it in calculating the effects of the way it's exercising its new global power. It has a position it has never had in its history. And you find examples after examples how, how China stumbles and miscalculates about the consequences of the, of the way it's exercising its global power. So that's one should not get over. Um, um, also in terms of assessing China's power, one needs to see all the limitations uh, to, to, to this power, which is important enough, but I just want to add some, uh, some caveats or some uh, nuances to, to the analysis. And for all uh, Chinese uh, investments through the uh, Silk and Road Initiative uh, and its um, closer relation, relationship with Russia, Russia and China have few political friends uh, globally. I mean, having said that, however, we have uh, gone through a period of uh, rapidly changing global relationships, power relationships, and changes to global society itself um, that has resulted uh, from, just to add a few elements of importance for our discussion, the confrontation that was mentioned between Russia and the West over the Ukraine, um, uh, and tensions between the West and China due to the rise of China. And I want to say, add to that, also the way the current American administration is pursuing its trade policies to, towards uh, China. So uh, these are indeed important changes to, uh, that has happened recently. And this, of course, results in some new features, uh, such as the uh, closer bonds between Russia and China that was mentioned in the previous presentations, residing on a resentment against uh, perceived um, uh, um, Western, and not only perceived, but also real, real uh, to some extent, uh, Western uh, colonial influence and um, uh, over and politics towards, in particular, China. Uh, but this is a resentment that also feeds nationalism. Uh, dangerously close to feeding nationalism in China and Russia and can be used uh, in terms of for trying to create greater internal cohesiveness. At least that was for a couple of years ago an element one could discern, but that may now have abated. <clears throat> uh, 
this is also a closer relationship against uh, Chinese and Russian perception of the West uh, contributing to color revolutions uh, uh, in Ukraine, maybe in Hong Kong, etc., uh, uh, etc. Et it's a hedging against what is perceived as Western interference in international in, in internal affairs, and there is also a Chinese-Russian uh, understanding in terms of uh, helping each other to create strategic depth should there ever be some sort of uh, Western military encroachment, in particular on China, uh, but maybe also on Russia. This is an element that is, I think, not always um, highlighted and understood. And then, of course, there is the interest in countering Western influence in general and to uh, uh, create a more multipolar world and even drawing wedges in the Western camp uh, and uh, in particular, uh, all major nations, and that includes the United States as well, with regard to European Union, always tries to split up the block, the unity of the European Union, and try to cultivate bilateral relationships, which are, of course, much more easier to deal with. Um, but what does this Chinese and Russian relationship uh, amount to in, in Asia? Uh, well, again, it's a big difference if you're talking about Euro-Asia in terms of Central Asia, or if you're talking about the maritime South Asian uh, uh, geographical spaces. Uh, as we all know, the, uh, China and Russia have, uh, have united in their efforts at increasing their influence in, in Central Asia, where Russia, previously the Soviet Union, always had a, a considerable influence. Chinese money through the Belt and Road Initiative, but also the Russian-Eurasian Economic Union, and Putin's greater Euro-Asian partnership uh, are examples of how uh, the combination of Chinese money and Russian political influence uh, may shape the region. And, uh, and I mean, it's natural that China and Russia have considerable influence in this region, but again, Central Asia is not the world. It's not even the beacon uh, of geopolitical influence, um, even if it's important in and of itself. And then there's another aspect of, uh, of sort of creating a Eurasian space, and that is the idea of connecting China uh, in partnership with Russia to, to Europe. Um, we have seen the formation of the 16 plus one formats by China uh, between uh, Central China and Central and Eastern European countries, some of the members of the European Union, um, with Chinese investment going into Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, however, these investments are small in comparison to the resources that the European Union itself is applying to Central and Eastern Europe. So again, one has to look at the numbers in, try, in order to assess the geopolitical impact of these investments. However, it results in uh, voting patterns where members of the European Union are not, union are not loyal with EU uh, lines on, for example, human rights when it comes to voting in the United Nations because there have been outside pressure, particularly from China, uh, with regard to these matters. So it has some consequences, but let's not over-exaggerate over them. Uh, also, you have had uh, Chinese couple of years of uh, Chinese direct investments and acquisitions of high technology in the West and in, in Europe, in Germany in particular. Uh, but that is creating itself its counter reactions with screening mechanisms, with hedging against uh, uh, Chinese influence, both in terms of economic weight, but also in terms as defined uh, in security terms. So again, Chinese influence is, 
is encountering uh, um, resistance as well. Uh, and in all of this, uh, Russia is, of course, a junior partner to uh, China. It is uh, a relationship, as has been uh, mentioned here, that has had um, there's a historic mistrust between the two countries. But I, I would, at this point in time, uh, underline and, and uh, support the uh, need to, to understand that there is a substantial amount of, of uh, Sino-Russian understanding in terms of addressing uh, um, changing relationships in global affairs. And Russia always hoping that uh, let another decade pass and the West will forget about the Crimea and Donbass. And we will uh, be able to return to normalize our relationship with the European Union and our relationship with China uh, will provide us with some more uh, backbone in, uh, in, uh, and in addressing the uh, relationship, in that relationship with the West. Uh, as you can hear, I'm slightly skeptical about these grandiose ideas of connecting the whole of the Eurasian landmass. I don't know how many of us that have traveled through the Eurasian landmass, but it's, it's a vast area with, many, with very different geographical conditions and, and some conflicts, nasty conflicts uh, in between. Now, South Asia, uh, which is more important for India, even though I guess India will watch uh, the game in, in Central Asia as well. Uh, there we encounter a revisionist China. Um, I wouldn't call, I don't know if Christopher meant that, that the uh, claims for a more uh, equitable division of influence in international organization is uh, an example or an expression of revisionist behavior. You, you probably didn't mean that, but that is, of course, not the case. That's a legitimate claim, I mean, to see a changing uh, representation and, and relationships in international uh, organizations. Uh, and the WTO rules will have to be renegotiated because they were not written. China was not admitted in the WTO with the realization that this is a state capitalist country. And now the West and China will have to come to terms that this is not, this is a relationship between two different animals, economic animals. So there's a lot of things that have to change. But in terms of this fortifying of, of the Spratly Islands and of the Nine Dash Line in South China Sea and previously in conflicts between China and Japan, um, here, Russia or China is definitely uh, a revisionist um, uh, nation. Now, and it's of course ac uh, accompanied by a, a huge buildup of uh, Chinese naval power, which is uh, of course great concern to India. This is the maritime areas that are of ma main interest to uh, to India. However, this again creates its counter reactions with the Quad, the uh, alliance of the uh, countries that were. With its, uh, it's an uneven sort of relationship. Uh, India is cautious uh, for obvious reasons. Its trade relations with China just being one of the elements. But still, this is a, these are a number of very important countries. And into the picture, you could add Vietnam, uh, a nation of almost 100 million uh, people. Uh, and Vietnam's uh, now closer relationship with the United States. So it's not going to be some sort of simple rearrangement uh, in favor of China uh, in that part of the world either. And for in the Pacific, you should, remind, you should add the United Kingdom and France, which are two Indo-Pacific uh, maritime nations with smaller capabilities, of course, uh, than, uh, than the United States, for example. But still, these are two nuclear powers. And uh, this is sometimes forgotten. And they 
accompany the United States into the South China Sea, although they don't get, go as close to uh, to uh, to the uh, to the 45, uh, fortified Chinese by China fortified islands in in the area, but still they are there. Um, also, you have seen the European Union, as was mentioned uh, in uh, after the collapse collapse of the TTIP negotiations between. Uh, the Western and Asia, the EU pr proceeding with its own bilateral trade, trade agreements, being very successful in doing so, India, Japan, uh, as was mentioned. Again, we have new patterns emerging that are sort of counterbalancing screwed military power, and they should be taken into account. India, then, to uh, finalize. Um, I think Henrik, you pointed out all the complicating matters that will tie, still tie India will not make it a geopolitical player in the way that uh, Russia and, and China are. Um, so I need not uh, repeat, but it's, you know, it's soon to become the world's most popular, more populous country, if it has not yet. It's a matter of a few 10 million uh, individuals from one month to the other. <laughs> the size of, uh, a little more than the size of uh, population of our country. But it's a country that is mired in uh, complicated domestic domestic uh, situations with difficulties at reforming its economy. It also is tied down by an intractable conflict with Pakistan over Kashmir, which we have only recently said, uh, seen uh, an, an example of this. And again, China, as much as India will want to accommodate China for trade relationship, Pakistan owes its nuclear capability to China, and India has not forgotten this. These are all deep wounds in the relationship that will force or lead uh, India to balance and calculate its many, the many different relationships it has to work out. Um, and with regard to the West, uh, it's true that the, under the Bush administration, the energy uh, nuclear energy cooperation was a great step in for, stop for, uh, forward. Um, and during some of the last couple of years, uh, the United States surpassed uh, Russia in terms of uh, defense material exports to, uh, to India. But still, India, which is the main buyer of defense material in the world, uh, gets most of its, uh, its uh, equipment from uh, Russia. However, and it has recently, uh, Russia has recently exported the S-400 anti-missile defense, defense system to, to India. Um, and it's in discussion with Russia over a fifth-generation stealth fighter. However, uh, India is not that very happy with the quality of its cooperation with Russia in terms of defense material. There have been a lot of quality problems, not only with the old MiG planes, one of them went down, but also in terms of the new generation of fighter planes. And India has enormous needs. Almost all of its uh, fighter plane uh, fleet is aged, needs to be substituted soon. The problem is, of course, Indian bureaucracy, the difficulty of coming at decisions on where to, what to buy. But India will have to buy from several countries. Uh, Russia will not be enough in, uh, in satisfying the needs uh, India have. And of course, Sweden is hoping to sell its Gripen. Uh, to India, one of the countries um, trying its luck. So finalizing, uh, I think we are looking for a prolonged period of adjustments in uh, global affairs, including the relationship between India, Russia, uh, and China, and uh, where 
some of the alliances uh, that we see or close, close relationships uh, will undergo change because countries are trying out their new, the new relationships uh, that will come after the post-World War Pax Americana organization we have had of the international position or, or international system. Uh, the main problem for this problem, for this region and for India in that context is, of course, the risk of miscalculations, particularly with regard to the use of uh, taking into account that several of these, uh, of the protagonists of this jockeying for positions are nuclear powers. Uh, India and Pakistan, of course, being um, the main, one of the main sources and dangers of miscalculations, but another one, of course, North Korea. So it is a very complicated environment uh, where, in which India will have to find its place. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for this insightful uh, comment, uh, which I very much appreciated. So I will just throw out two questions, one question each before we open up the floor. Um, <clears throat> so. To Christopher first, um, one thing that you mentioned and that, that I th think is interesting, but where I where I uh, would like to uh, to know a bit more about is um, <clears throat> sort of institutional architecture that is built around uh, um, uh, the new relationships that we see um, uh, emerging and also in a sort of a more multipolar world. We have been talking about the SEO. Uh, SCO. Uh, we have been talking about the investment banks, BRICS, and uh, the Asian Investment Bank, and so forth. So, how how much impact and how much um, um, uh, you know? What can we expect from these kinds of uh, 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 new forms of cooperation, and how much will they impact uh, on uh, on? Uh, the situation in uh, in Asia, as you see it? Um, I think it, it's a good question. Um, I think it's 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 a little bit hard to see, perhaps, at the moment. I mean, as I as I mentioned, there are several attempts to to increase this type of cooperation. Um, they have this common desire, as I, as I noted, uh, to to rearrange somehow the global uh, system for for how things are done. Um, the BRICS, of course, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, there is a, a, a slight of a, a challenge here because um, although they have this, this common aspiration, they, they differ a little bit in perhaps the vision of, of how this will look in the future um, and in style. Uh, Russia is perhaps the most revisionist or aggressive, I, I don't know how you put it, in, in terms of rearrangement. Uh, China and India, uh, with perhaps India the least, uh, uh, have a different uh, agenda here uh, and a different approach. Um, you said before uh, China has been a, revi a, revi a revisionist uh, lately. I, I, I do agree on that uh, point over the last years, but China has been remarkably um, consistent, at least before Xi Jinping, in its foreign policy, uh, in integrating itself with the world. I mean, uh, China had a very um, uh, consistent grand strategy of reassuring the world about its peaceful uh, intentions and on, and, and it was quite successful. Uh, it has changed uh, lately under Xi Jinping, uh, 
for different reasons, uh, but but overall, uh, we shouldn't uh, be too uh, alarmistic about about China in in this regard. Um, but of course, there are, there is great potential for special Eurasia uh, for for uh, for a uh, sort of realignment uh, of of, uh, of institutions. Uh, we mentioned before the the Belt and Road and, and Russia's Eurasia Economic uh, Union. That was, of course, uh, when China launched the Belt and Road, um, the Russians were quite skeptical. They were a little bit worried. Um, you mentioned before that Russia has had a traditional uh, dominant role in Central Asia. Um, Chinese have, of course, moved into Central Asia uh, over the years, also before the Belt and Road. They're the biggest trading partner now to all Central Asian states. So the Russians are obviously quite skeptical. Mm -hmm. I think that the Chinese have been quite successful in, in, in alleviating Russian fears over this. Um, reassurance and so forth. Um, what happened is that uh, the Chinese and the Russians agreed to coordinate the Belt and Road with the Eurasian Economic Union, um, which is a sign, I think, of, of some sort of coordination and, and uh, that also mitigated some of the Russian concerns. There are attempts here to find a common space uh, to, to kind of uh, create some kind of system here where, where, where the three uh, parties have, have a role to play. Would you like to comment as well on, on this question? Um, well, as I, th I think the, um, um, I was arguing, it's natural that China and Russia are influential in Central Asia. Uh, and it's natural that China, with its economic might, is offering investment globally. It's up to countries to <laughs> assess whether this is beneficial or not uh, to them. Um, but it is an uneven relationship between Russia and China. And the Chinese has been, have been clever in trying to uh, attenuate Russian suspicion with regard to the ultimate Chinese uh, goal. Um, they do not have much power, however, to resist the Chinese economic power. Uh, and it even sees, of course, in the current situation of strained relationship with the West as a way of, balan or sort of uh, balancing uh, its relationship with the West. Um, Russia, however, in the end, is a European nation. Uh, so uh, we will all feel the increased inf influence, economic and political, of China. That's just a natural thing, uh, evolution of things. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that in a long-term perspective, Russia's basic European orientation, orientation and, and nature will be felt again. Which means that we have seen some very dramatic changes over the last 10 years resulting from China's rise and from a relatively weakened position of the West. However, it's not an absolute weakened position by the West. It's relative. One has to mind, remind oneself mm. about that. But as this plays itself out, maybe uh, the world is now digesting uh, the effects of, this, uh, of China's rise. And we will uh, hopefully move into a plateau where things, uh, where in nations and regions are becoming a little more sure about their interrelationships. That's at least my, my hope. But miscalculations can happen. Thanks. Um, and, and one question for you as well. Uh, you brought up the concept of Eurasia, and you were quite skeptical about you know, the potential of this being an integrated sort of supercontinent. But uh, uh, the concept of Eurasia um, has traveled quite a bit uh, over the last decades from being a sort of Russian idea of greater Russia perhaps towards um, uh, now being 
now being a sort sort of neutral or at least a, a description of an integrated region. Um, so I was curious, um, you know, when you look at this trilateral, for example, uh, how much do these ideas about Eurasianism uh, and Eurasia actually uh, play into the cooperation that we see between, for example, these three countries? Um, is there a sort of ideational or ideological underpinning to this kind of cooperation? Or is it just a, a matter of uh, relations for convenience? Well, it's both, I'd say. Um, I think it's in, in, it is important, if not to, in order to highlight, uh, to increase attention towards what's happening, to talk about a Euro-Asian Euro dimension. It's not a territory, it's not a contiguous, homogeneous sort of uh, geopolitical area or even economic area that is uh, emerging, but it's new dimension. And it results primarily from the weight, economic weight of China, where mis investments are filtering in uh, westwards. Uh, some of that going into infrastructural projects that are beneficial to, uh, to the countries with which China cooperates. Some are detrimental, and we have seen conflicts in, in parts of the world where there's been uh, not only in the West, uh, but also in Africa and Asia, counter-reactions to the conditions imposed by China. If you don't pay up, we seize your harbor or even the debt burden that, burden that uh, many of these Chinese loans imply, uh, which means that I think that uh, um, while this is natural uh, and may be beneficial, it will also be sort of, uh, after a while, there be, it will be a sort of a more balanced influence. It will uh, produce counter-reactions and, and uh, be cut down in size, if I put it that way, into something more uh, realistic. Uh, so it's new to the world, that's why we notice it, uh, and uh, it represents a new dimension, but it's not a new geopolitical territory. All right, thank you very much. So we have about 14 minutes for the Q&A, um, um, and we have one microphone. Okay, let me... So let, let us work, out, work ourselves this way, start with the gentleman here and then there. Over here, and, and please uh, let, let me just remind you to be to the point in the question. Thank you, Bruno Sudin, Stockholm University. Question is the relationship between structural changes and triggering events, and it goes basically to Katarina, but also to the other two. We have many possibilities of triggering events. The uh, Kashmiri, the South China Seas, Japanese interference uh, there, uh, new Crimeas and North Korea, etc. So what is the fragility of the system for those triggering events connecting the system or just tensions and changing power relationships? That was quite quick, wasn't it? Well done. So we take three questions and then we, re re we respond. Thank you. I was wondering uh, if you had any um, predictions or, or, or thoughts about how uh, climate change uh, uh, induced risks might um, uh, affect the involvement of the, uh, the relationships, uh, seeing as uh, they share borders and so uh, also um, geographical 
concerns. Thank you very much. Third question. Okay, in the middle, and then we have take the take you next time. So. Thank you. Three excellent questions uh, put, put very succinct. So if we start with the question about structure and event, uh, it was put to you. Well, I think I already uh, outlined in my presentation that the uh, main risks result in the miscalculations and the nuclear element is the most dangerous of all. Well, that's a huge topic, but I think I shall just limit myself to saying that. With regard to climate, um, I would guess that Central Asia is the most vulnerable part uh, in, in this context with regard to the effects of climate change, um, how that may uh, influence uh, the most strategic relationships. Um, I cannot say. I haven't thought it through, but I just point, in terms of regions, I would guess that's where the... Uh, where you have the more vulnerable parts of this part of the world, although, of course, you have parts of China and you have parts of India that also are severely seriously affected and severely affected. With regard to... Um, it's a good question. I'm sorry I can't give you any, a more elaborate answer. With regard to financial institutions, this is just a complementary thing. Uh, what we should be, the uh, Asian investment banks, complementary doesn't add up, it just cannot be compare, compared to institutions like the WTO or the uh, IMF. The problem with the only institutions that they are under strain, as we all know, particularly w, WTO, as I said, uh, the, the Americans to great extent influenced the rules for, that were laid down when China was admitted to WTO, didn't understand the consequences of, of integrating China into global economy. They were looking for business opportunities primarily. And all the other aspects that are now being dealt with in cascades didn't fit the uh, wasn't part of the of the uh, of the analysis. And now uh, we have to WTO has to um, is under enormous pressure because of this friction between state capitalism, Chinese and Western market liberal capitalist system. However, negotiations are undergoing on ways to. Uh, and the Chinese seem to be interested in trying to contribute to uh, rewriting the rules in a way that would sort of accommodate uh, uh, these different systems or take into account the difference uh, in terms of system. Uh, also, IT was not part of the uh, picture uh, when one uh, looked at the WTO, the rules, um, the last time when they were more profound, when they <laughs> particularly not when it was created. As we know, there's pressure coming from the United States as well, with the uh, Trump administration not, uh, not appointing the necessary uh, 
staff members uh, or uh, to to the uh, to the legal part of the WTO, thus undermining in in practice the WTO. Sorry. Yeah, but what I'm saying is WTO that is uh, at the center now uh, of sort of uh, the pressures resulting from all the, the different, um, from the different, the changing geopolitical and geoeconomic um, society that we have been uh, discussing. IMF, the Asian banks, investment banks, they will not um, supersede IMF or the World Bank either. But it's a, it's a question of accommodating all these new players in, in the field. Thank you. Would you like to add to this or take a step? I'll try to add some short uh, remarks on each of the three uh, questions. Uh, the structural um, question, if I understood it right, um, I, mean, I, I do think that uh, underlying um, what we're seeing are, of course, structural changes. I mean, uh, primarily the rise of China and the, the relative decline of, of the U.S. And, and what we're talking about here is, of course, a... Um, a significant improvement of Chinese capabilities over time. I mean, with the remarkable economic growth of China since the last three decades, you have more resources. And with more resources, resources comes more influence and aspiration. So this is the underlying um, kind of feature. Uh, this, of course, then creates tensions and, and, and that then are exacerbated by, by hotspots uh, as you just mentioned. So I think this, this is important to, to think of that we're talking about the structural change here um, that is, is happening. On the climate change, um, I mean, I, I think there is, uh, there is room for cooperation between, uh, between these three countries, especially between China and India. They, they both have big <laughs> issues uh, to deal with, uh, pollution. Uh, China was before, if I remember, had, had the most polluted cities in the world. Uh, I think that was now surpassed by India. <laughs> Um, so they have that in common, and, and they do cooperate. Uh, they, they had uh, uh, cooperation in, in Copenhagen 2009, for instance, and, and they're, they're trying to... to uh, so that's, that's a positive sign of the, of the relationship. Um, Russia's uh, position on, on, on climate change, I'm not sure how much uh, or how they're doing there. I mean, uh, again, the Arctic is a quite interesting case. Uh, China and, and, and India, are of course, interested uh, in the Arctic uh, for energy reasons, uh, for instance, uh, uh, shipping and, and so on, but but um, also for climate, of course. I mean, again, China and India have big problems with, with, uh, with uh, how climate change affects their country. So, so doing scientific research in the Arctic, of course, uh, helps them to, to deal with these problems. Um, just, just last, on the, on the institutions, I also agree. I don't think it's an alternative. I think it's a complement. The Chinese uh, have been quite clear with that, I think, also. That this is something uh, that they just want to complement with existing uh, institutions, which they also work with still very heavily. So sorry, we, we just have a few more minutes and uh, we have two more questions. So um, I'll just reflect a little bit on, on, on your question here about climate change um, and security-related risks. I think in terms of South Asia, that's a major issue. Uh, we see, for example, in, um, in terms of um, water um, and uh, the, we have the sources of, of four of the largest uh, rivers uh, for South, the South Asian region within the uh, Tibet or Chinese uh, uh, space, uh, and also uh, we have uh, the arrangements between Pakistan and India, for example, to regulate uh, water, which are contentious issues, and I think this will be and become uh, a, a very um, uh, prominent 
um, aspect of the security relations between the countries. But, uh, okay, so we have one question over here and then over here. If we can get the mic up to the lady over there. Hello, uh, my question is for the entire panel. Uh, traditionally, China and Pakistan have had a close relationship. Um, what are the reasons for this, and has the Chinese-Pakistani relationship changed as China has moved closer to India? Thank you. And then here. Uh, it, it seems like everybody is still discussing out of the Western perspective uh, about geopolitics and things when they try to analyze what's going on in the world. I mean, China is changing the world just now, and uh, uh, the, the words they are using is community of shared future for mankind or community of common destiny. And they will change that, and with that, uh, it will uh, change the whole world. I think we shall uh, see that they do, are doing that. And my question is, why do we always uh, uh, see problems and not opportunities in the development with, which is going on? For example, all Africa's connection to all, all this has not been discussed at all. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, so two questions, China, Pakistan, and uh, the pessimism surrounding China's activities. Okay. Well, um, I'm sure you're fully aware of the origins of, the, uh, of uh, these complicated relationships which had to do with partition of British India, of course, and creation of Pakistan and, and, uh, and India, and um, the border conflict between China and India, and this has, of course, led to uh, uh, alliances um, with China and Pakistan's being allied in previously, uh, or close, have a close relationship that uh, uh, was had its uh, directed against India for for all these reasons, the uh, border issues, and, and uh, that India and China are now drawing closer is a result, of course. Uh, um, is a consequence of China's growing influence. It's natural that one tries to accommodate these new uh, realities in, in Asia. So, uh, but still, you have an underlying history there that should not be, um, be forgotten. Um, with regard to, I don't think the, uh, uh, I think I have underlined that much of China's influence, growing influence, is natural and it could be beneficial for many countries. However, uh, one element, we have lived through a period of rapid rise of China and belatedly we have counter-reactions to that. But eventually, rise, China will not continue to rise, but it will be sort of more settled in into a more uh, stable relationships with the rest uh, of uh, the world in my mind. Uh, so I think in a way we are talking about something that happened five, ten years ago, 
and does not fully reflect uh, today's realities, for example, in terms of, of uh, Xi Jinping's uh, hubris that has uh, contributed to uh, China overplaying its, uh, its cards, for example. You see now a certain contraction by China, a reassessment. Why are we producing these kind of reactions? That may be tactical, we don't know. But if you add to that that China will not continue to rise, we are moving into, hopefully, into more stable territories uh, in the years ahead. And I also said that some of these investments may, may be beneficial, but you have had some nasty examples where they have not been beneficials and where China has um, uh, seized ports and infrastructure. It had been part of the contracts. If you don't pay, we will have access to your part of your infrastructure. So. Uh, also here you have having country reactions both in, in African countries and, and in Asia. And, and, you, and conflicts, domestic conflicts over the role of Chinese investments in Malaysia, et cetera, et cetera, in the Maldives. So we have several examples of this. I don't think China will dominate the world. That's my punchline. Okay, with those words, I think uh, uh, we stop. Uh, I would like to thank the panelists for their excellent contributions. And um, I would also like to thank you for coming and uh, being so to the point in your questions. I really appreciate that. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>